to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Wednesday, September 21st, and today, Julia Yaffe is here with, believe it or not, a note of optimism about the war in Ukraine and what might be Vladimir Putin's weakening position, both inside Russia and among his small group of international strongman allies. And later on, Dylan Byers is here to talk about the Washington Post. In the Trump years, the New York Times and the Post were both riding high with their aggressive coverage of the White House. But since then, the New York Times has kept on climbing, while the Post hasn't been able to keep up, both in terms of revenue and subscribers. Dylan talks about what he's hearing from inside the Post newsroom. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Wednesday, everybody. I'm joined today by Julia Yaffe, who, if you tune into Real Time with Bill Maher, you might have seen Julia. I feel like this is your second time on Bill Maher since yep. joining Puck. And I know, by the way, your like appearance got picked up by Fox News, so I'm sorry for um, whatever goes down in your DMs over the next few days. <laughs> <laughs> well, enough HBO chit-chat. Let's talk about the war in Ukraine. Julia, there's something interesting happening right now. Vladimir Putin is basically engineering referendums, correct me if I'm wrong on the details, you're the expert here, in four provinces, including Donetsk and Luhansk, but two other provinces, I think Kherson, and I forget the fourth one. Zipadishu. Yes. If I'm understanding this correctly, there are going to be these sort of fake referendums where the people in these regions will vote to become either part of Russia uh, or vote to... um, you know, in support of Russia, either way, from what I'm reading, that would then give license to Putin if Ukraine attacks any of these regions or has troops in any of these regions for him to counterattack and say you're encroaching on Russian soil. Is that what he's trying to do here? It could be, but it's also, so I think what's interesting is a, he only controls two of those regions militarily. And in the other two, in Kherson and Zaporizhia, he is losing ground as we speak to the Ukrainian counteroffensive. So it'll be interesting to see how the hell he's going to annex these regions. I mean, when we last talked, I think like the first week or second week of September, Ukraine had moved with lightning speed through, I think the parts of the Northeast uh, and recaptured a bunch of territory. Yeah, and he's losing ground in the South as well. Much more much more slowly, but it's, it's going okay. uh, because that's kind of where more of the kind of better fighters, more professional Russian military is, and it's harder going there. And Russia's also about to announce some kind of mobilization. What's going on there? So it's a little muddy. We It's not totally clear, but the Russian parliament is, the Russian quote-unquote parliament is creating quote-unquote laws uh, <laughs> that are basically <laughs> laying down the groundwork for kind of the legal groundwork to do this. So they're will make it a crime punishable for up to 10 years in prison to surrender to the enemy, to avoid the a draft, to uh, basically say no to military service if you're drafted in the mobilization during wartime. So it seems that they're preparing for some kind of mobilization and to declare some kind of wartime as opposed to a special military operation. I think that's another thing. That's another bone being tossed to the party of war who have been calling for a long time for a mobilization because in their minds, 
the only thing that's keeping Russia from winning and winning quickly in Ukraine is that they're fighting with one hand tied behind their back. And if they were just to fully mobilize and announce basically a national draft that they, that they would just overrun Ukraine immediately. This is not correct. Basically, <laughs> basically the, the Russian military can't absorb that many people. It's not built to have millions and millions of soldiers. What do you mean by that? I'm no military expert. So I ask people who are, uh, especially Michael Kaufman, who has predicted kind of turns of this war with a scary prophetic like um, accuracy. But the way he explains it is basically you have an army that's built for a certain capacity, right? For like, let's say 100,000 troops. If you suddenly call up, you know, 300,000 more, what are you going to do with them when they all show up? Where are you going to house them? How are you going to feed them? Do you have military uniforms for all of them? Do you have places to train them? Do you have officers to train them? It's not like 300,000 people show up at these military recruitment posts and with a snap of a finger are ready to fight, trained, armed, equipped. It takes months for mobilization to bear fruit. And as Kaufman pointed out to me, Ukraine mobilized in late February, early March, and they're just now starting to see the benefits of that. And then the other thing that makes it problematic is the domestic piece. The reason that Putin has avoided doing it for all these months is to maintain for as long as he can this sense of normalcy at home, the way that we were able in America to fight two wars in Iraq and Afghanistan but in LA and DC and New York and pretty much everywhere in the country, you could go get your coffee at Starbucks and you wouldn't know that there was a war being fought by our country. He wanted to do the same thing for Russians and a mobilization, i.e. a draft, would undermine that, would bring the war home to people, would make it unpopular. Just with the rumors of this, we're already seeing men flood kind of legal hotlines asking for advice. Can they get uh, waivers? Can they get off, et cetera? So this might prove extremely destabilizing at home while not giving him the military advantage on the battlefield that he wants. One more thing before you go uh, related to China. Russia and China announced they're deepening their strategic partnership, whatever that means. But does this make... Putin more likely to dig his heels in now that he's got this huge geopolitical partnership going on? So I see this a little differently. Last Thursday, Putin went to Uzbekistan for this meeting of the Shanghai Cooperation Agreement, and he met with leaders of Iran and Azerbaijan and Turkey and Tajikistan and, you know, all, all, all the great guys. And he got his ass handed to him. You know, he thought these were guys who were going to back him, who were going to say, don't listen to the effete Westerners. We got you, man. China was very cold to him. Xi Jinping was very cold to him. Putin himself had to admit publicly that China had, quote, questions and concerns about the war. There was no more of the friendliness. In fact, you saw Putin sucking up publicly to Xi Jinping, calling him his dear friend and his old comrade. And Xi Jinping was having none of it. Narendra Modi, India's strongman president, 
just reamed him out and said, now is not the era of wars. And he said, we've talked about this many times over the phone. We talked about the need for diplomacy and essentially about the need for you to wrap this shit up, Vladimir. He reamed him out. He I mean, he chewed him out. And then you also saw what was so, I mean, it was delicious poetic justice. Putin has been, has always done this thing, this very crude power play where he makes people wait for him. He brought the dog to Angela Merkel's meeting. Remember that? Yeah, he did. He did do that. But it's the waiting that is like, if he can make you wait, it's you acknowledging that he's more powerful, more important than you are. And he got the British queen and the pope and all these other people to admit that he's more important. Well, here he was waiting for the Turkish president. He was waiting for the Azeri president. He was waiting for the fucking Kyrgyz president. It's humiliating, right? Because all these other strong men are like, oh, you know, he's heading into this summit a week after this offensive has started. He's losing. He doesn't look as strong as he is. His economy is faltering. They smell the chum in the water, you know? Wow. This is the first hopeful thing you've said to me on this podcast about Russia in six months. This suggests that there might be some international pressure, not from non-Western allies. Yeah. Uh, like saying, dude, you got to fucking wrap this up. But what's crazy is that he comes back from that and he's like, cool, I'm going to wrap this up. Mobilization. Hmm. <laughs> That's the pressure coming from the Hawks like inside Russia. At home, right. So he's clearly not listening to Narendra Modi. Okay, well, this suggests things might not be worse. So thank you, Julia, for bringing me a little ray of, a little ray of sunshine on this Wednesday. That's what they call me. <laughs> That's absolutely <laughs> not what they call you. Okay, we'll have you back soon. Thanks, Julia. Thanks, Peter. When we come back, Ben Landy talks to Dylan Byers about The Washington Post. Hey, Puck listeners, as a reminder, in celebration of our one-year anniversary, we're offering a rare discount off our subscriptions, 21% off. That's because we launched in 2021, and it's been an incredible year since. So go sign up now. The link is in the show notes. I promise it's even better than The Powers That Be, which, as you know, is the greatest show on the internet. Welcome back. I'm Ben Landy, sharing the mic today with media reporter Dylan Byers. What's happening, man? Hi, I'm, I'm on the East Coast. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you. It feels good to be here. So we've been wanting to have you back on the pod to talk more about The Washington Post, which is a media story that you've been following for a while, but is really one of the most remarkable business case studies in the industry, maybe ever. Yeah. For people who don't remember, The Post has always been sort of a, a Washington hometown paper first and a national paper second, at least until the Trump era when the journalism got totally supercharged, reporters turned into celebrities, and the paper really transformed itself. I mean, when Jeff Bezos bought the Washington Post in 2013, he spent $250 million on it, which looks like nothing today compared to some of the other sales we've seen in recent years. But then the Trump era ended, and as you've been reporting, the Post never found a way to capitalize on that success in a way that would outlast Trump. So what is the bigger picture here? Well, <laughs> Look, I mean, I think if the Washington Post were just the hometown paper in Washington and, and sort of an afterthought, 
to the bigger news brands of our time, like the New York Times or CNN, I wouldn't pay it nearly half as much mind. But you do have all of these interesting things in place. You have Jeff Bezos owning the paper, and obviously he has a ton of resources at his disposal, and I would say a sort of competitive spirit. I don't think if you're Jeff Bezos, you own a paper without wanting to be really competitive and grow that business as aggressively as you can. And then you have, yes, those those incredible years during the Trump administration under Marty Baron, at which the paper grew uh, at the same pace, if not faster, than the New York Times and really sort of demonstrated its incredible political coverage, congressional coverage, uh, investigative work. And so I think this question that I've been wrestling with for a long time, that I've been writing about, that we've been talking about, is Trump's not gone away, but but those sort of golden years are over. The New York Times did this incredible job of positioning itself for success as a business by giving its readers all of this, these really sticky products to keep them around and make it a part of your lifestyle, cooking, games, the daily podcast. And I keep looking at the, the Washington Post and I keep wondering where is that? And, and the impression I get in the reporting I've done so far is that the Post knows it has a very strong core product. And I do believe that the ambition is there to be a paper that has national and ultimately international appeal. I just think that they are still figuring out what it's going to take to get it there. And I don't see a lot of great silver bullet solutions beyond just sort of growing the core product and trying to identify a few additional coverage areas where they can grow it. And I think the big test for the post is going to be, can you actually grow the business in a meaningful way without creating all of these ancillary products that give people reasons to stay with the Washington Post other than the news product? I don't think they have those answers yet. And I think that there might be a sense that rather than waiting until the Trump bump went away to figure out the answers to these questions, that maybe they should have been moving faster in the past to identify what those solutions were. Yeah, it's funny. At the beginning of the Trump years, uh, when I was at Vanity Fair, I remember we were constantly publishing stories about the Post versus the Times. The race is on to be the biggest paper in the country. It really felt like there was a true rivalry there. And then the Times just totally ran away with it. I mean, it, it really feels like it's not even close at this point. Do you think that the Post needs to have some of those same products that the Times built up so successfully? Health, games, a cooking vertical to be competitive? Yeah, I do. I do. I think that the problem right now is that when the news cycle is in their wheelhouse, when it is about politics and policy, then, then they're great. They're totally fine. Um, but there's no other reason to stick around. And and people don't just consume news. They do all sorts of other things on their phones all day long. Uh, and they don't do those things at the Washington Post. And so, yes, I do think that they need those things. Now, I don't think it's a sound investment to just try and copy the New York Times. For instance, New York Times has a killer cooking app, right? I don't think the Washington Post needs to necessarily create its own food vertical that tries to go toe-to-toe with that. But I do think they need to identify areas where they feel like they can become sticky. And I know that they're launching, I think we were first to report this, but they're launching a sort of new health and wellness vertical, which is one area where they think they can do that. The other thing I would say is that I think that the Post needs to become a little sexier again. 
there was a day when the style section was really strong, for instance. I think if they can find a way to sort of tap into the sort of DC scene and the and and power as it really works, not necessarily on Capitol Hill, but in Georgetown and, and Calorama and on Embassy Row. I think there are a lot of areas actually where they don't need to sort of randomly diversify the core product, but they can actually build out from the inherent advantage they have, which is being in the center of Washington. I think there are all sorts of areas where they can sort of look at the overlap between you know, Silicon Valley and Washington, big business and Washington, even, you know, Hollywood and Washington. And I think that they could sort of build out from there to create a more compelling product. Because the problem is, is when Congress isn't in session, when we're not in the middle of a political race, when the stakes aren't really high in politics, you don't really need the Washington Post. And and of course, as, as we talk about all the time, when we talk about media, if you're not essential to people, if you're not necessary, you're screwed. You had some reporting the other day, speaking to people at The Post, who told you that they are not looking to do acquisitions and M&A to build out this company. They're going to be building from the inside out. Yeah. Uh, Sarah Fisher at Axios flagged the other day in her newsletter that The Post is advertising for an e-commerce expert. So clearly they see potential new revenue lines there. But it sounds like what you're really talking about in terms of the strategy is on the editorial side, perhaps getting smaller in order to get bigger or at least going deeper in order to tap into what their core competencies are? I think going deeper is right. I worry about the lack of an M&A strategy, if I'm, if I'm being totally honest, because I think if you ask any news media executive what it takes to build things on your own in-house, that takes a real dedicated effort and it takes a lot of money and it, and it can be a gamble. And this is, of course, the great benefit of M&A. It's the great benefit, say, of the New York Times acquiring The Athletic. You can let someone else go out there and do that, and then you can just buy the thing wholesale, ready-made, and then sort of like work it into your own infrastructure. If the post is dedicated to building these things in-house, I think it has to determine a few core areas where it believes that it can really run circles around the New York Times, not just go toe-to-toe with them, but really become the sort of authoritative voice on those beats and then go there. I think from where they're standing, and I, I think they that the business of the Washington Post is probably five or 10 years behind the business of the New York Times, I don't think you can kind of just start throwing things against the wall piecemeal to see what sticks. I think things have to get really aggressive and you really have to light a fire behind these efforts. What's your assessment of what Jeff Bezos wants to do with this paper? Because again, he bought it for nothing. I mean, the cost of a yacht plus a couple of years of upkeep. I mean, this is the thing that keeps me coming back to the Washington Post is you've got an owner here who, again, is not just wealthy, but competitive and smart and disruptive. But at the same time, I think he's got a list of priorities and the Washington Post probably isn't in, in the top five or top 10 of those things. I think the people who are ultimately responsible for success at the Washington Post is not Jeff Bezos. It's Fred Ryan and and then the editorial leadership led by Sally Busby getting those ideas going and then getting them in front of Jeff Bezos and and convincing him that these are areas where they need to dedicate their resources. Yeah, there's been some chatter that Fred Ryan maybe hasn't been ambitious enough. Do you think that he ultimately sticks around? That's a really good question. I think, you know, one person I was, I met with while I was I'm, I'm in Washington went, was um, cautioning me, I think wisely, that 
before the stories saying that Fred Ryan wasn't aggressive enough, there were a lot of stories touting how much Fred Ryan had done to grow the post over the course of the last five or six years. What I will say is I think Fred Ryan is aware of the coverage and the questions out there about his leadership. And I think my guess is that Jeff Bezos, even off doing all the things he's doing, is probably aware that this conversation is happening. And I think now is really the time to demonstrate and, and prove his value. And I, I look, I think a lot of people respect Fred Ryan, uh, especially in Washington. I think he understands that decisive, bold action needs to be taken now. Because if you keep dragging your feet, we, we do get to the point where the Washington Post missed the opportunity to capitalize on the Trump bump. And it is sort of an afterthought against an august paper and really successful business that is the New York Times. We've got some new reporting on this subject dropping later today. So I encourage people to go check that out. Dylan, thanks for stopping by. Thank you so much, Ben. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 